0: Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today is day 468 of the Corona Crisis. I am securely locked up in my Ohio stronghold with plenty of food, streaming video, yard work, and plenty of general anxiety. I don't know what day it is, but my calendar reminder says it's time to upload a new podcast episode. So, Today I'm talking to Brent Bankus, a student in the Graduate History Program at Southern New Hampshire University, who also serves as the Program Manager for the U.S. Army Strategic Education Program and is affiliated with the U.S. Army War College's Heritage and Education Center. Today we're going to talk about his academic and professional background, including his work on militias and state defense forces, and his history-related career within the U.S. Army. What is your name and what do you do?
1: Yes, uh, my name is uh, Brent Bankus. I'm a uh, retired lieutenant colonel. Uh, For the past 20 years, I've been working at the U.S. Army War College, Carlisle Barracks. Presently, my job is program manager for the uh, U.S. Army Strategic Education Program, or ASAP. It's a a group of somewhere around 22 courses uh, for general officers uh, to be signed up for and courses taken. So I'm kind of like the registrar that I do, sign people up for the courses.
0: Okay, great. And yeah, we'll come back and talk a little about that in a bit more detail here coming up. But before we get there, can we talk a little bit about your academic and professional background?
1: Absolutely. My undergraduate is in uh, history, uh, history teacher. But my master's degrees include management of uh, resource management from computer resource management, uh, strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. The resource management uh, is from Strayer University. And I'm working on my third uh, master's degree, which is in uh, southern New Hampshire uh, on military history. I figured I've been doing it for such a long time, I may as well uh, get a master's in it. But in any case, so my teaching experience has been anywhere from oh, junior high through the uh, master's degree level. I have taught both electives and core courses here at the u s Army war College.
0: When you were teaching at the war college, I'm assuming are are you or were you at the time were you active military? Or are you still active military?
1: no uh I was both i've I've taught in both uniform and out of uniform, so I taught some of the electives while I was still in uniform. but then as I retired in two thousand and five and came back as a uh, staff and faculty. I've taught as well, okay. both the uh, electives and the core courses.
0: And when you were go- working on those various degrees, uh, you've got many of them. <laughs> when you were working on those, what were the major research projects that you were involved with while while you were in school?
1: Oh yes, the master's degree that I'm current working on, currently working on, or Southern New Hampshire, what is the uh, or the capstone course? Capstone thesis is going to be on. The U.S. military and small wars, both uh, roughly from post-Spanish-American War, the Philippines up until uh, uh, what we're we're doing today, in both Iraq, Afghanistan, worldwide, in actuality. But mm-hmm. that's always been an interest in my uh, in my bailiwick. And when I did the masters in uh, from the U.S. Army War College. The paper that I wrote on was on a home, the home guard, the, uh, similar to the book on uh, Pennsylvania home guard. But essentially, what the uh, the paper was about are, are volunteer military organizations that were used during World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. Here in the states, the the, the Brits had a uh, had a home guard in World War Two as well, and they had a a sitcom not. All that long ago, which was called uh, Dad's Army. So, for those who know the BBC, that uh, mm-hmm. that sitcom.
0: Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about your research into the Home Guards, because, like you just mentioned, um, you actually wrote a book, the uh, Pennsylvania State Defense Forces, 1918 to 1953. They also served. What has your research into the State Defense Forces been like? What have you been? What have What have you found? What has interested you in that topic?
1: Well, in the first place, it was kind of a labor of love for me because my grandfather was in the uh, Pennsylvania sta- uh, Home Guard in World War II. He was one of those folks that were too old, or correction, too young for the First World War, and were, had a family in, uh, during World War II, but still wanted to serve, so he joined up. And essentially, uh, both during World War One and II, uh the states had uh, home guards, and the problem was with the active army, once the, uh, the, the infantry divisions were activated, National Guard and Reserve infantry divisions were activated, they were sent off to various points on the, uh, on the compass for the First World War, just Europe. But for the Second World War, either Europe or the Pacific, well, that left the, dif- the states, the governors, uh, without their National Guard, which normally handles things like labor strikes or uh, problems during uh, snowstorms, the normal missions that the National Guard takes uh, uh, takes part in. So, the governors approached the War Department on both World Wars and said, "Hey, look, we need help." And the War Department said, "Sorry, we need you we need these troops uh, for overseas duty," and the the fallback position was that governors were given permission through the uh, National Defense Act, I think, starting in 1916, to be able to raise and equip their own. Essentially, they were uh, replacement National Guard units. You know, for example, the in Pennsylvania, just as I outlined in my book, the person in charge of the uh, Pennsylvania State Guard um, was a veteran of Spanish-American War, uh, Philippines, Mexican border, and World War One. So those were the kinds of uh, uh, soldiers that were drawn towards the uh, the state state defense forces or home guard. Now the World War One group, uh, some of the volunteers that. Uh, these states were able to use reached back as far as the Civil War, if you can believe that. In other words, people that had a prior military experience
0: was uh, highly sought after. If I'm understanding correctly, basically the Home Guards were there to replace the National Guard troops who would normally be the state State, I don't know if you want to call it a state military organization, but state Correct. level military organization the 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 national guard is sent off to overseas fighting, and so the home Guard was kind of created as a uh replacement for them uh was this an all volunteer force or were there were, were these for these
1: well, it's paid soldiers um or? and that's a good question because when you when you i read about them, normally they would drill. Uh, one night a week. And what they would do is they would occupy the uh, armories of the National Guard uh, units in whatever town it is. Now, during the week when they would drill, they would do do it on a volunteer basis. They wouldn't be paid for anything. But yet, they would have an annual training period of, say, three to five days at the local training area. They would be paid for that. Or if they were sent to some sort of a school, leadership school, what have you, they would be paid for that. But other than that, they were volunteers; they weren't. They wouldn't be paid for. So during World War II, uh, I can remember my uh, grandfather telling me that when they pulled guard duty on the local, uh, and they would they would defend like there was a uh, American Car and Foundry uh, Company in the town that he was in, which is uh, uh, Berwick, Pennsylvania. And they had guard towers. Well, they took their turns throughout the company, uh, throughout the unit, and they would stand guard duty. And they would guard the uh, American Car and Foundry uh, facility. They would be put on guard duty on the local bridge. And these folks carried weapons and ammunition. I mean, the, the long guns they had were old uh, 1903 Springfields, but they still had uh, live ammunition with them.
0: So these guys were doing a lot of the duties that a National Guard would have otherwise done. Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, once the war ended and the National Guards came back, did that bring an end to the Home Guard project, or did they find yes, some kind of the most coexistence?
1: Part, right. Here in Pennsylvania during that period, uh, I think the last Home Guard unit folded up its flags uh, in 1948. And since then, Pennsylvania, at least, uh, n- never carried on, never had any active uh, home guard units. Now they call them state defense forces. And that's the only reason they did that was because of the, the militia movement, like in the 1980s, where you had all these uh, you know, disparate people running around with AK-47s and so on. Mm-hmm. So they call, instead of calling them home guards or militias, which is exactly what they are, is, is uh, unorganized militia. They just called them state defense forces.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. So these, uh, so who, what types of people were inhabiting? You mentioned that there were some that were there, some of them had military training going all the way back to the Civil War. So I'm guessing that, especially during World War One, World War Two, when there's drafts and all of that, that the most, you know, the 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 most eligible fighting age men are going to get picked up in the draft and all that, and then the this National Guard would be kind of the secondary group. So the people that were in these that were uh, taking positions in this home guard are these generally like the older people that still want to serve but aren't able to qualify for active duty in the regular military? What types of people were inhabiting these roles during wartime?
1: Oh, absolutely, and that's a good question too because as you were talking about it, it uh, brought up a point that uh, I found out when I did my research. You are you you are correct. Uh, a lot of the uh, folks were older that had had prior service experience. But by the same token, there were the younger ones, younger individuals who wanted to join up. They were allowed to join up. Say, for example, if they were all 13 or 14 or 15 in 1941, by the time that they became of draft age, 1943 or 44, <coughs> they had already had some prior service experience. And when mm. those individuals went to basic training of whatever branch of the military they went in, they were automatically picked for leadership positions, if you can believe that one.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. So we've got kind of older folks and then younger folks that are right. using this as kind of a prep school for the military kind of thing, right. <laughs> almost.
1: The younger ones, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so uh, the Pennsylvania Home Guard, like you said, shut down in the late 40s, uh, which kind of makes sense. I mean, at that point, when all the troops are coming back, you probably don't really need the Home Guard anymore. In the modern era, when we still hear about National Guard troops being sent overseas to fight in Iraq and and Afghanistan, has there been talk about resurrecting a kind of a Home Guard system? Or are we just leaving enough National Guard behind to be able to meet that demand while also sending some of them overseas?
1: No, um as you mentioned, the National Guard, because they're not uh, being deployed, do they believe uh, leave people back? Yes, they do. But there are states out there that still have state defense forces. Here's an example. Uh, Alaska has a state defense force up there, and those individuals are highly trained. As a matter of fact, they can double as... Uh, Alaska State Troopers. I get I, if my understanding I'm and I'm reaching back to my in my memory when I did the research years ago sure. uh, for the book or for the articles. And I can I will be able to send you some of those articles, too, by the way, to give you a better idea of, of uh, because I just didn't write. I wrote the book about the Pennsylvania uh, State or Pennsylvania Home Guard, but I've also published about five, six or seven articles um, from different points of view on I've done one already on volunteer military organizations of other countries, uh, Canada, uh, some of the Scandinavian countries. But anyway, but the uh, the thing is, though, some of these uh, uh, state defense forces—the new name for the old home guard concept—in some of these states, New York is a big one, Alaska. Uh, there are there are several of them that have uh, naval militias too. About the same time. Um, Ohio has a naval militia I think they still do I'd have to look I haven't looked at the uh uh the state defense force uh, website lately but these were some of the uh the more uh, active ones when I did my original research but there are still uh state defense forces out there and they do provide a uh an excellent addition to the National Guard and there are for those states that uh, use them uh, they they utilize them pretty well.
0: Interesting, and so you're talking about in your current uh, history uh, program, you're working on your capstone project, and you're looking at volunteer forces in modern warfare. Uh, no, the current one that was the
1: what I was telling you about the state defense forces home guards that was a that was kind of like a hobby. That's what I wrote my uh, my one masters on from the. Army War College, which is in oh, strategic okay. studies, the cap st- that was the capstone paper that I presented for that for that degree. Now, the one I'm working on for uh, Southern New Hampshire University, the capstone uh, paper will be on uh, small wars, U.S. military Ooh. and small wars around from starting from the uh, Spanish-American War to today.
0: Okay. A little bit and, of clarification, sorry. No, that's that's fine. I I was getting I think I'm getting your degrees mixed up. <laughs> that's not a problem. Um do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about the current project that you're working on now? Sure. Okay. Um, so when you're putting together this capstone, what types of sources are you using and what's the scope? Because it sounds like this is something that could get very big and unwieldy. And so how, how are you kind of limiting your scope to make sure it still remains manageable and what types of sources are you going to use to help you uh, formulate that project?
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's some of the, uh, the same questions that I've gone over with some of my instructors that I've taken courses with. Southern New Hampshire mm-hmm. University to date, because that's a that's like an eight hundred pound uh, or eight thousand pound elephant. You got to take it a little <laughs> right. bit at a time. So what I'm trying to shoot for is to write a seventy five to hundred page paper, uh, master's th- uh, thesis, on because if you take a look at the current literature on oh my god just take, for example, Vietnam. If there's one book out there about Vietnam, there's a thousand. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. There are
1: so many moving parts for that conflict, it's, it's just not funny. Well, when you peel back the onion and <clears throat> start taking a look at some of the uh, uh, small wars or small-scale operations that we have been involved in from the, from the Philippines starting in 1899 to the present, that's just huge. So, What I'm trying to wrestle with is how to take a certain point of view of what what has gotten us, the U.S., into these small wars. What were the contributing factors? Did the National uh, Command Authority, what prompted their decisions... What was the leadership like? What were the leadership thought processes behind getting involved with these operations? And uh, actually, to date, I have found some very interesting uh, small wars topics, one being the, uh, our operations in Russia from 1918 to 1922 that you don't hear or see very much about. Writing-wise, you know, if you do Mm -hmm. a literature review, you don't see all that much out there. Vietnam, obviously, um, and and some of the rest of them that we've been involved in. You see a lot written out there. But to take a look and kind of get a purview, I don't want to say it might not be the right word, but kind of take a look and what are the recurring themes, if you will, that uh, permeate throughout these... uh, our involvement in these small wars operations. And again, I haven't nailed it all down yet. I'm doing that as I go. But what I've done, and my instructors at Southern New Hampshire have been excellent, and I told them straight up that when I first started taking the course, I said, hey, look, here's what I want to do. And the same I just uh, mentioned to you. I want to focus on small wars and insurgencies that the U.S. has been involved in for over 100 years. Uh, So I'm still fleshing out what are the uh, contributing factors and those kinds of things. So it's original scholarship. It's not just a continuation of what others have uh, already written, if that makes any sense to you.
0: Now, that makes sense to kind of look at it from the meta perspective as kind of the what is the things that connecting all of those small wars together. Because, yeah, trying to cover all of them individually would be <laughs> possibly disastrous. I mean, if we're talking, you know, there's dozens of them just in Latin America alone in the first decades of the 20th century. And so the idea that you would cover all of them is not realistic, but. Focusing on kind of the decision-making process and looking for kind of the themes between all of them, I think that's a really cool idea. And and you certainly will have lots of examples to draw on when you're trying to support those general conclusions. That I think this is interesting.
1: And and the two, the thing is, it wasn't just um, one of the things that I found out as I've done my research is as an as the example I just gave to you about U.S. forces in uh, in Russia and. 1918 and 1922 well it started uh, during the uh, first world war when mm-hmm. you know uh the kaiser had uh uh lenin whisked in from uh, what i think he was in switzerland in a sealed train or whatever uh and uh president wilson was afraid that communism would bleed over into some of the allied uh Allied countries, the U.S. being one of them. So what he wanted to do, and he did, was he sent troops to both Vladivostok uh, and Archangel to guard the, uh, the equipment that the Allies had sent there so they didn't fall into the hands of the, uh, of the Bolsheviks. And that's just one example. But when I was uh, doing research, talking to my father, who was a, a veteran, a Marine veteran in World War II... When he was stationed in China right after the war, one of the things that they were doing, uh, was not, was kind of like, uh, soft power. They were guarding coal trains. Wasn't out, out and out combat. And this was after the war was over. So they were guarding coal trains. So because the communist, uh, forces were stealing the coal off the coal trains. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have, um, uh, these, this small wars, these small wars, uh, oh, what do I want to say? Uh, Operations can be part of, you know, an all out or post uh, large scale conflict, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. And I think that really demonstrates the, that a lot of American military operations are kind of vaguely defined because, yeah, we might call that a small war, but if it's But that term can range from, you know, actively engaging in combat somewhere to, you know, guarding supply lines for something else. And so there's kind of a pretty broad range of experiences as to what what the military is actually doing. Um, Yeah. Well, one of the
1: things uh, one of my other projects that I'm involved in and I've I've written a little bit of it, not a whole lot yet, but um, I ran into uh, a. friend of mine friend of mine now rick kiernan he's a colonel retired uh, uh, pao officer he had been in vietnam in 69 and 70 um and he did some of the uh soft power stuff over there and he said hey how would you like to uh co-author with me about uh stuff that we did in south vietnam in the haunia province which province which was uh west i think southwest or just plain west of uh saigon now called ho chi minh city so we Mm -hmm. got involved in uh oh helping to helping the local population guard against the uh uh, the nva and the vc taking over these small uh towns and hamlets and so on so we did a lot of that stuff he said would you be interested in in doing that i said sure it's it's you know, part and parcel to what my, uh, what my hobby is. And obviously, as I just explained for, uh, my capstone, uh, paper for Southern New Hampshire. So I said, sure. So I started, uh, writing a little bit on that. So what I'll do is I'll present some of the historical information. And then because Rick was actually there, he can always plug in, you know, the, the no kidding down and dirty. Here's what we do. Right. So that's how we, we partner great for
0: that. I think. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that would be a really good, um, that's a really interesting pairing of uh, perspectives. That's great. Absolutely. All right. And so now let's, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about what you've, your your career and your experiences with the uh, army war college and various other educational um, aspects and all that. So can you tell us a little bit about your career in the military education service?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, In some of the same, way that folks maneuver through the uh, civilian education system when we graduate from college as an officer when you graduate from college you initially go to the, the first course you go to is the basic course that teaches you whatever your specialty is like i was an armor guy you go to that first course and it teach you okay here's a tank was here's what you're supposed to do with it here's how you lead your troops you're going to be in charge of so many people and so on. And then past that, you go to a unit, you stay there for a couple years, then they send you again to the advanced course. Now they call it the career course. So it's just a step up and, okay, as a company commander, uh, here's what you're going to need to know, and so on. And then once you're out in the field a couple, three, four more years, as you're ready to become a, uh, a major, then they send you to Command General Staff School, which teaches you how to be a staff officer. And then from there, uh, you get to go to you. It's a selection process, obviously, to the War College, which is where I'm at. And what that does is teaches about. It's not just shooting people and breaking things. The War College <laughs> is a uh, military course that teaches the students about military. Informational—it's called the dime process. Diplomatic, uh, military, information, and I can't remember what the the uh, E stands for. Economic uh, teaches the students about the the more than just military kinds of things. Because once and by the time these students are here, they're lieutenant colonels or colonels which is fairly high up in the, in the rating chain. And they could leave the War College and, say, for example, be a, uh, an advisor to a senator or a congressman. And they have to have the information necessary. Once the, uh, the civilian leader asks them questions about the military, they have to be able to, to uh, talk coherently to them. So that's the curriculum that's is, uh, in place here at the war college. It's just, in other words, it's not just, uh, military oriented.
0: Interesting. Okay. And so you, uh, you mentioned that you taught for these, uh, did you teach some of those, some of those, uh, basic and advanced courses or what were you teaching when you, uh, at your time at the, uh, no, the, uh,
1: I never taught at the, uh, Basic or advanced course. The courses that I taught at were once I got here, uh, which have been in the past twenty years, uh, in from August of two thousand on. May, uh, more often than not, from two thousand five to up to like a year or two ago, um, some of the courses that that uh, I co-taught with uh, another uh, colleague was environmental security, and uh, one was um, RSE Africa, uh, Regional Study Elective Africa. Uh, I had been to the continent several times, so we got to teach that. And there are one or two others. I can't think. I'll probably think about them when i'm done talking here but nonetheless (laughs) uh three uh four courses the uh the rsc africa uh regional studies elective africa that was part of the uh core course although it's it's called elective it's it was part of the core course that you teach uh uh that they taught they teach here at the at the war college taught that for about uh three years one was the first year was um I believe, co-taught with an individual, but then the second, the other two courses, or the other two years that I taught it, I taught that on my own. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I also developed a course called Military Government, uh, and that was very, very interesting. Matter of fact, a friend of mine and I actually designed it. We printed, we ran a, uh, published an article about military government because our boss came to us in, I think this was like 2007, and said, hey, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, it seems like, especially in Iraq, we're doing, uh, getting involved in the government, you know, the, uh, helping the the Iraqis uh, get their uh, government back on, back online, and, gee, you know, this is some, some of the stuff that we've done before as, a, as an army in years past. Again, you go back to the, uh, uh, the Philippine War, 1899 and 1913 and various other places, you know, you name it. And mm-hmm. so he said, well, I want you guys to go write an article about it. So we read, wrote an article and got it published. And I think it was through, I can't remember what the... the uh, publication was but uh i think it was joint forces quarterly in any case we got that published and then the boss came back and said hey i want you guys to design a uh uh, a course to teach here as an elective so my colleague uh, professor jim kevin and i came up with the uh the we designed the course and taught it for i think geez at least four or five years Oh, that was interesting.
0: I bet. And then you uh, mentioned in, um, I forget if, if you told me about it or if I read about it in some of your information, but that you were with the uh, U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center?
1: Uh, sure. The Senior Officer Oral History Program that I was in charge of as the branch chief, the program itself was started in 1970 by General uh, William Westmoreland, and it was kind of a Lessons learned and the design of it was was to interview general officers that had been in multiple you know had been to Vietnam and and, and at that point in time in their career most of them had been in in multiple uh, operations to provide those coming up through or through the research community a background of what we would do or what they would do is to take their their bio and develop questions from the bio of from the time these general officers had been commissioned as second lieutenant and up to and including their entire military career and in some cases past that as to all right well when you were a a Lieutenant, how did you lead your platoon and vice as uh, you grew up through the ranks to oh, to be a company, battalion, brigade, and division commander, how did your leadership style change? And the focus of these oral histories were, again, as I say, general officers such as uh, former chiefs of staff of the Army, vice chiefs of staff, combatant commanders, and uh, that's kind of where the focus of the uh, entire project was. And that's what it was laid out to uh, design. But that had been in a uh, part of an Army regulation, uh, 870-5, for almost 50 years. And it was just recently decided because of budget cuts to do away with the, uh, the program altogether. So that's kind of where that stands at this point. But it's very interesting because over the years, and I was there as the oral history branch chief for approximately Oh, over seven years. And it was fantastic because you would always get someone, a researcher coming in who wanted to see about, well, let me, uh, I'd like to see the oral history on General Westmoreland or uh, some other general officer. They wanted to get information out of it. And it was just never ending. Those oral histories were used by a variety of, of researchers.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a real shame that that program has been discontinued, because I can see a lot of value in that, either to military folks, but also to historians that are trying to get some insights into decision-making in military environments and all that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And one of the other uh, oral history programs that was part and parcel to it was Division Commander's uh, Lessons Learned, or DCOL, everybody, you know, the Army has, uh, the military has all kinds of acronyms. It's called DCOL. DCLL, Division Commander Lessons Learned, and the uh, design of it was that you, again, had a series of questions that you would ask the general officer, okay, sir, as you were in charge of the 1st Cavalry Division uh, during this period, whenever it was, what kind of experiences did you have in uh, logistics? What issues did you have? Were you in charge of not only the division that you commanded but sometimes uh, in these instances the uh, general officer is also the post commander so what kind of issues did you have to deal with and so on so that was also another uh, another oral history program part and parcel to the senior officer oral history program but that was just geared towards the division commanders and those were not made available to uh, the public, whereas the Senior Officer Oral History Program, any researcher could use those.
0: Well, yeah, that sounds like a really interesting project to be involved with, because I'm sure you meet some really amazing people with have some really amazing experiences. And like I said, that is quite oh, a shame absolutely. that it's uh, that that program is not in existence anymore.
1: Yes. It, uh, they may try to bring it back. That's just, you know, a word through the grapevine. But mm-hmm. who knows? Which yeah. is what led me over to uh, uh, the senior uh, Senior Education Program.
0: Well, yeah, so let's let's talk about that for a little bit. So what is that program? What does it do, and what is your role in that job?
1: My specific job is the uh, program manager, which in a lot of instances, it equates it to kind of like the registrar. Now, the Army Senior Education Program started in, I believe, 2017 when the, uh, the chief of staff of the Army at the time decided that a, the officers... Their uh, education program should not stop at the war college in other words uh lieutenant colonel colonel list or lieutenant colonel or colonel ranks the general officers should also be have the opportunity to get to be uh, go to more uh, different schools so that was what the uh the program was design of it was and there's approximately oh, 22 of these courses set up of different not only army courses but they can Chosen general officers can uh, attend uh, different schools of uh, other branches, like the Navy, the Air Force runs some courses that uh, we send officers to. And that was, again, started by the Chief of Staff at the time, General Milley, who's now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So we've been doing uh, yeoman's work, making sure that uh, individuals get into these courses, get trained, and so on. And the courses uh, vary, and for different uh, for different re- different things, we're preparing to kick off one called the basic course, which, as you would imagine, is for those officers just ready to become brigadier generals. So it gives them a play of the land, if you will, as to what, what the Army at that level is all about, uh, the different things that they'd be responsible for. Just as an an indoctrination, a beginner's level indoctrination into the general officer way of life in the Army. And then they have the advanced course, the command course. Uh, If you're going to be a division commander, the uh, general officer management office out of the Pentagon will send us the name of the individuals. We contact the individuals and they say, yes, I'd like to go to this course. We sign them up, they go and they get trained. It's kind of a step-by-step process.
0: And so this is a voluntary education program? It's not something that's required of all general officers?
1: Well, it it just depends. There are some, like the uh, capstone course run at National Defense University, that once a a general officer, Army Brigadier General, has been chosen by Congress to become a brigadier, in other words, the Senate confirmation, they Mm -hmm. have, it's congressionally mandated that they have two years to go to this course. Okay. And it introduces these general officers to the joint community because there are all all branches go to it, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, uh, and civilians, uh, SES civilians, and they go to it as well.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds like a really interesting uh, position. So you say that you're the registrar, but thats I don't want to downplay that too much. I mean, you are part of the uh, top you know, administrators of this program, and so that's that's really important. Wow. And it sounds like it's a very—it's um, important to the American military. It's it's beyond just um, just the general importance of the education. I mean, this sounds like it's a really valuable part of the training for new general officers,
1: well, and possibly even old in, ones. And again, you know, it's not just you know brigadiers. There, for brigadier generals or or newly commissioned, as they move up the chain, there are uh, become one one star, two star, three star, and a full general. There are uh, courses set up, and it's situation dependent too on what uh, what positions they're in that uh, they get nominated by the General Officer Management Office at the uh, at the Pentagon that uh, manages general officer careers, and uh, so there's a variety of of these courses. So it's it's very it's a very demanding job too.
0: Oh, I can imagine. As a, uh, I imagine it's fairly high pressure. I mean, these are very high performing individuals, and so oh, I'm sure those are some interesting uh, conversations to be had in those courses.
1: Fortunately, the the general officers are very professional, and they're very good working with our program, our our management office. So we've mm-hmm. been uh, we're very lucky to be uh, to have such officers because they're very professional, and they understand if you you know if you make a mistake or you uh, send them a wrong email or some such thing, it's it's usually not not an issue. The importance is that you make sure, as the working in the program office, that you get be be diligent at uh, what you're doing because there are three. You know, it's the active army, the Army National Guard, and the Army Reserve. All three of those components, if you will, uh, have slots in most cases for these uh, courses. Now, not all of them, but most of them. So. You have a. Uh, you have to be in touch with the General Officer Management Office of the Active Component, the National Guard, and the Reserve to make sure that they stay on track and uh, that they provide you with names of prospective students for these courses in a quick amount of time. I'm, uh, that's not really the word. In a, uh, I'm not sure what. Uh, my like a tongue like does. a short
0: turnover kind of thing.
1: Yes. It, it, timely in a timely fashion so as an example if we're going to have a a course starting in january this month by september of the previous year they being the general officer management offices of the active army army national guard and army reserve if they have slots to fill that by a certain amount of time in september or october you know in other words have lead time that that, that we get that information so we we can uh, interact with the, the course directors. That's one of the big, re- big things that I do. I interact with these course directors. So once I get the names, I interact with the course directors, make sure that the uh, students follow the directives and are prepared. Uh, by the time the course is ready to start, it starts and it's finished. So there's a lot to it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. So yeah, let's uh, move over and talk about some recommendations. Uh, what do you have that's uh, that you think the listeners might be interested in hearing about?
1: For the research community to be able to take advantage of the online information that we have here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center would be highly valuable to anyone who's interested in any. You know, once you get out there and look around on the on the uh, virtual library, there's so many things that just depends on. On what your uh, what your flavor is, or what it is that you're looking for, and for you, you just go out on the uh, the web browser and just type in U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, and it will automatically uh, give you the the website, and you can just go from there.
0: Does that give you access to those oral histories you were talking about?
1: Yes, it does. Oh, great! One of the designs that they're going, or one of the things, the big projects that the Army Heritage and Education Center has gone through now. Is digitization so the heritage and Education Center is in the throes of digitizing uh, their uh, their products
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they're moving ahead doing yeoman's work
0: oh that's great yeah I think that'll be really valuable to researchers and that I'm really glad to hear that that stuff is going online because like I said a few minutes ago I think especially with that oral history project I think there's a lot of lot of really great information there that historians and other researchers could benefit from
1: oh absolutely.
0: Great. Well, thanks for that. And um, I will post a link to that in the episode notes when I put this episode up. Uh, I am going to recommend a article from the New York Times. We are recording this episode in January, but the episode is probably not going to go live until April or May. So this will be a little bit outdated by that point. But the New York Times published a really interesting article last week about history textbooks in grade school classes. And what they did was they took textbooks that had different versions for different parts of the country. And so they found textbooks that record, that had one version in California and a different version in Texas. And they basically compared the two versions to figure out where, what are the differences? What are California students learning that is different from Texas students? And they found some pretty remarkable kind of interesting conclusions, that there are some things that are being learned in, like I said, in California classes that are not being learned in Texas classes. The article is called uh, Two States, Eight Textbooks, Two American Stories. American history textbooks can differ across the country in ways that are shaded by partisan politics. And what they've they've decided or what they concluded after analyzing these textbooks side by side is that there are some very pretty dramatic differences, as I mentioned. And a lot of it comes from just kind of the political persuasions of these regions of the country. So in California, the California legislature, the California Board of Education requires textbooks to really focus on history from the ground up. How did it affect people on the ground? How did it affect minority groups? How did it affect women? How did it affect, you know, uh, transgender? How did it affect all these different people on the ground? Whereas Texas, perhaps unsurprisingly, their Board of Education wants students to focus more on a traditional kind of top-down view of history. How did the government work? How did the Constitution get formed? And so we have kind of these very different kind of fundamental approaches to history that are playing out in the creation of these textbooks. The publishers, of course, are being kind of pushed from all sides because if they want to sell books in California, they have to kind of adopt this uh, bottom-up perspective and if they want to sell books in texas they're kind of forced to look at it from a top-down perspective and so they're forced to finally kind of figure out how much can we how much of a middle ground do we have and then what do we have to tweak in order to sell version a to california and version b to texas and so they the, the publishers are walking kind of a fine line trying to figure out how to do that and so when the New York Times took the two versions, California and Texas, put them side by side, they realized that there are some pretty dramatic differences. I mean, those those are fundamental approaches, bottom up versus top down, that kind of characterizes and that, that becomes kind of the basis of most of the differences. But there, there are a lot of differences, like in the California textbooks, they talk about efforts to limit gun rights uh, through Second Amendment legislation in the courts. In Texas, they don't talk about efforts to restrict gun rights. Sometimes these things might seem small, but sometimes they're pretty dramatic. And so sometimes they talk about the Texas textbooks cover white resistance to civil rights movement in a very different way than the California one does. And so when you look at them collectively, these do tend to kind of fall into partisan type perspectives, which is interesting. So it's a really good, interesting article. It's really well produced. They have a lot of the they, they take a lot of images and they have some really uh, nifty little transition techniques and all of that. But it's a really interesting article, and so I will post the link to that on the um, podcast feed also, so everyone can go take a look at that. So it's a New York Times article on the differences between textbooks in California versus uh, Texas. So that's my recommendation, and so I think we can call it a day. So uh, thank you for joining me today, Brent. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that very much. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians@gmail.com. At if you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do so through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other favorite podcast app, and maybe even leave us a review. For now, for Brent Bankus, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe.